Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode of the Single Tracks podcast is sponsored by Evo. Evo is a leading action sports retailer with stores in Seattle, Portland, and Denver, along with their website, evo.com. Evo goes beyond just selling mountain bikes. They offer a full immersive experience blending sports, culture, and lifestyle. Keep listening for an exclusive discount code to use in-store and online at evo.com. That's evo.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. Today, my guest is Tom Ritchie. Tom is credited as the first production mountain bike frame builder in the world and has introduced countless bike designs and products over the years that are considered standard in the industry today. His company, Ritchie Design, where Tom is still actively involved, designs high-performance bikes, handlebars, seat posts, grips, tires, and pretty much everything in between. Thanks for joining me, Tom. Hey, my pleasure. So I've read that your father was a cycling enthusiast, and he taught you to build wheels and uh, showed you brazing techniques. What was it that attracted you to fixing bikes and bike parts at such an early age? Yeah, my dad was always working on his own projects. He was an engineer for a tech company in, in the Bay Area called Ampex, and, but he was also an avid cyclist, a sailor, was in the Sierra Club, was, uh, was working on crazy garage projects like a steam car, and, and uh, <laughs> wow. built, we built, our, built his own sailboat. And anyway, there was, our garage was very, very active, and there was a lot of things always going on, and I was in the middle of it. So with that, there came tools and use of tools and, and basically learning some of it together. He knew, of course, a lot more than I did at, at that age. Um, mm-hmm. One of the pictures you might run across is the electric car I built when I was 12. Wow. And, and that was actually where I really learned to braze because that was all tubular steel construction. And I was brazing and basically asking him when he came home at night about how to execute this, and how to execute that. And in some of it I would do and some of it I'd wait for when he got home and he'd help me execute it. And, and I ended up driving the this two-seater electric or all, all over Palo Alto at 12 years old. So Wow. Well, I, I mean, I find it fascinating, too. You paint this picture of your father and sort of how you grew up in the Bay Area, you know, which is home to all these tech companies and these garage startups. I mean, do you think that was yeah. part of why mountain biking came to be? I mean, could it have started anywhere else other than, you know, the Bay Area where people are tinkering and people are trying new things like that well i'm sure i'm sure anything is possible i i think there's quite a bit of difference between the mindset of people in the palo alto silicon valley what is now called the silicon valley area mm-hmm. my dad and and uh, yopes and other people that were kind of entrenched in the technology startups and through the garage startups of hewlett packard and so forth and and what I would consider the mindset of people in Berkeley and, and Marin County and uh, and other places. 
not to take away from anything from Marin or other places, but mm-hmm. I think Joe's dad was kind of unique in, in terms of being somebody that was uh, was a hands-on guy with, with a similar experience that I had. There's quite a few things that are what I would call the undercurrents of, of the area that we lived in, mm-hmm. the people that were living there. And I, I would say in a much larger term, the cycling industry that was European focused and really hadn't seen any fertile growth in the United States up until that time. Those are big conversations. Those are major chapters of books that right. no one no one has written yet. So <laughs> we were gifted with a lot of wonderful fire roads and single tracks that were that were built here over the years. Mm-hmm leading up to the idea of the mountain bike and idea of, of what we were playing around off-road on bikes, period, road bikes, mountain bikes, whatever you call them, ballooners. Right. Um, so I think knowing that the bikes were limited, knowing that we were basically at best riding cyclocross bikes, at worst we were riding <laughs> clunkers, what you do with your terrain depends upon the kind of terrain you have. And so right. we, when, you know, to be honest with you, when, when I was riding with Yopes a lot of the time, and we were on single tracks in the Santa Cruz Mountains, falling wasn't the worst thing that happened to you because it was usually something that you were pushing the limit and you fell into a huge pile of redwood mulch. Uh And that wasn't so bad. Whereas falling, if you had kind of played in the same way that we were playing with, with our limits and you were falling, let's say, in my backyard down in Santa Barbara, you would be definitely hurting yourself right that's interesting you'd be gashing your legs there would be not a lot of room for error the kind of injuries that you'd have would be very difficult you'd be you know the, you'd be having flat tires a lot more and you'd be you'd be hurting a lot more of your equipment yeah and so and so i i think a big part of the story that's never really told is how living in the in the fog areas of of the central coast and basically north of let's say the Monterey Bay in the redwoods and fire roads was ideal. And it was an area that was well-developed in terms of single track and fire roads. And so the idea that Yoke started riding off-road in the 60s and, and was leading rides that my dad went on first and that I went on and that I invited Joe and Gary on, you know, leading up to the, the idea of the first kind of true off-road mountain bikes was was something that had been seated and in a unique environment been been basically presented to us on a platter by Yopes Brand. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too how you mentioned that mountain biking allowed people to play around a little bit more and that's seems like that's still part of the culture today. I mean, it's it seems like it's less serious than road biking. People are able to be more free and experiment. And you mentioned your friend, Yopes. He was basically a proto mountain biker. He was doing these off-road rides on single track in the 60s and the 70s, well before the repack races. So what, why did you and others decide to follow him on these crazy rides? Because he was the leader. <laughs> and he went on incredible, epic, hard adventure rides. You know, the who's who of Northern California racing was living a stone's throw from Yopes's departure in his house in Palo Alto. And the kind of, I mean, the Olympic team and, and myself and, and others were very much aware of Yopes's Sunday rides mm-hmm. and left at eight o'clock on his front doorstep. In those days, I mean, whether it be John Finley Scott up in Sacramento or Gary or 
they everyone knew everyone knew yopes was leading epic rides <laughs> and they were epic not just because they were all day very difficult rides but yopes was a renowned cyclist of strength and endurance mm. his rides would often leave people that were on the national team and category one riders in the dust <laughs> wow and people don't realize how difficult these rides were i mean when you leave at eight o'clock in the morning and you and you don't get back until six o'clock <laughs> in the evening yeah and you're on all day and and 30 miles or so of it was on dirt wow with flat tires that i mean it was it was completely different than any imagery that you could imagine that had to do with repack yeah well what was the draw though i mean was it was it seen as like a training ride and you just went out to push yourself or to train or was it, or was it more of like a fun adventure type thing? Oh, it was both. Um, <laughs> to give you a better idea of it, there was serious road races that we would call one another amongst people that I trained with. Dave Bohm, uh, the Olympic, he was on the Olympic team. He just passed away. You know, Keith Vieira. There's many, many riders that were my training partners and we would call one another. We go, what, what are you doing on Sunday? And there might be there might be a 120 mile road race out in wherever Fresno uh -huh. or some somewhere. And we knew where Yopes Yopes says, yeah, I'm going to do Bonnie Dune or I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And the conversation would be, I think I'll do the road race. I'm not in good enough shape to do the Yopes ride. <laughs> wow. And that that is a legitimate story. I'm not exaggerating so yopes's abilities were renowned you can talk to anybody anybody that lived those years and the thing that came with yopes's rides was not just an amazing experience of rides that you of roads and places you've never seen before i mean we were we were cyclists but we were we were lifestyle guys too mm -hmm. i mean we were competitors you know, and to, to a degree, some of us were more competitive than, than the other. But we lived in a time when things like the Sierra Club was just taking hold on public, mm -hmm. on the culture. You know, Chenard was starting Patagonia and all these kind of epic things were happening in other ways in the culture. California was, was a wilderness playground, mm -hmm. starting with, you know, cycling and, and Yosemite and all these places that, that people were adventuring to. And so it's a very, very fertile place to find people to do outrageous things. <laughs> right. Well, was, was Yopes designing these rides off the road and through single track and places like that for the scenery? Or was he doing it just to make it more difficult? I mean, what, what do you think his motivation was? So the other thing about every Yopes ride and Peter Johnson and other people will, will attest to this, is that it was an education. It was basically, a, Jobs was the professor leading a ride, and we were all getting an education and usually getting dropped in the process. Hmm. Sometimes we didn't do his rides for the education, but we got it anyway. <laughs> and for me, being 15 years old and starting out, you know, with, with a ride like that, I got to live somewhat everything I wanted to. Not only did I get a training experience in, a, in an outdoor adventure ride that was seeing areas that someone was leading me into that had been there before and knew knew that it was possible for the most part. Mm -hmm. But I was also getting an engineering course because Yopes was as much of a professor as he was a, as a cyclist. Hmm. 
Well, yeah, getting back to talking about pairing bikes and you started doing that at a very early age. And it also seems like you were cut out to be a a bike entrepreneur, for lack of a better term, in those days. So was that out of necessity or were you also interested in the business side of things? You know, I was friends, neighborhood kids. Everyone was mowing lawns, you know, throwing papers. (laughs) They were doing stuff. And I was I was no different. So as as far as being able to find a way of making an extra amount of money. It was that kind of a culture. No one was getting things handed to them as far as I knew. Everything was everything was a matter of making some spare money. And first thing my dad taught me is not wheels. He taught me how to repair tubulars. Ah. And in fifth grade, I was repairing tubulars for the local bike shop. And my dad was an archer, and he basically made his own bowstrings and arrows and things like that. Wow. And so... Some of the materials that he was using were bowstring material was suited to repairing tubulars. He practiced it and proved it and never had it, you know, it was before the age of YouTube or anything. <laughs> and so he developed his own techniques of, re- of repairing tubulars, cutting them open, resewing them back up, at, you know, repairing them, booting them, whatever they needed. Mm-hmm. And it taught it to me, and at $3 a piece, I was able to repair three tubulars an hour. <laughs> wow. and, at, and at 11 years old, that was a significant amount of money. Yeah. And so I would say I was, a, I was you know, whether it be that or, or building wheels, and soon thereafter, I was, I was aware that I, I could work on all kinds of things that people weren't good at. So repairing a frame was not anything anyone did that I was aware of. Hmm. So it may be something that uh, was a common thing if you were in Europe and maybe in a small village in Italy or whatever, but uh, in the United States, no one was repairing frames. Hmm. So repairing frames meant understanding frame construction, knowing how to, knowing where to buy tubes, being able to heat something up, take it apart, be able to clean it out, replace a tube, put it back together, you're basically building a section of a frame. Right. And so because I had just built an electric car and and, uh, was aware of phrasing techniques and stuff, I started repairing frames. And one of the first frames I repaired was a Cinelli uh, Model B and that I bought for 50 bucks for myself at 14 years old. And I ended up starting on my own product and ended up people saying, wow, you know, could you repair my Ron Cooper? Could you repair mm-hmm. my Colnago? Could you repair my Mazi? Could you repair my Chinelli? And and it just uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of repair work. There's a lot of people that just hung up their bikes, didn't have any didn't have any way of repairing. And so I became somewhat of a unique a uniquely skilled guy. And as a result of that, building a frame was just straightforward. And it seems like too you you learn a lot about the modes of failure that you're seeing on these bikes. And I'm sure you got ideas for how they could be improved, right? Right. So if you lived in Yobes's world, he was 6'4", weighed 190 pounds, had a pile of broken parts. You lived fully aware of how things failed. You also are starting to race. And we don't, we don't really understand what it was like in the amateur years of, of American cycling pre- before Greg LeMond. But Everyone was lucky to have one good bike. Hmm. And they were even more lucky to have one good bike and two 
pairs of wheels, one to race with and one to train with. There's very few people that I could even think of that had more than one bike. Why was that? Was it hard to find quality bikes in the U.S.? Were people having to import them or was it just well, that, not competitive and you didn't really need to have more than one bike? It was totally economics. <laughs> people don't, I mean, the idea of being able to keep a good bike going to have a new bike. I only knew a couple of people that had new bikes. Huh. I mean, we were living the big years of, of, of American cycling in the beginning. And to have a brand new Nuevo Record group was an unheard of thing. People that had good jobs and were and were racing were few and far between. Most, most of the, I mean, Lindsey Crawford was about the only one that had a new bike and he was an, a United Airlines pilot. <laughs> My dad didn't have a new bike. Yopes had a you know, a 10 year old Chinelli that, that I started to repair after he broke stuff. And, and as of getting back to Yopes, I was repairing Yopes's Chinelli for years until he finally said, yeah, I think I'll let you build one. <laughs> but it was a pile of broken axles and broken parts and continual repair. And I don't think there was one pair of wheels that Yopes hadn't rebuilt 10 times. Wow. And so that means that you're repairing broken axles and bearing races and balls and everything. It's, it's just like Africa, just like what I experienced when I went to Rwanda in 2005. Hmm. It was truly an amateur sport with all the limitations of a non-existent industry. And the thing that changed and the big story that no one really connects a dot is, is that everything changed before mountain bikes. Mountain bikes didn't change everything. They were a part of this, but the catalyst, the unique opportunity that set up the opportunities that I had with mountain bikes mm -hmm. was set up by one individual and one individual only. And that individual wasn't Yopes. <laughs> it was Greg LeMond. Huh. When Greg LeMond started to attract worldwide attention, the eyes of the world were all of a sudden on the U.S. He did things differently. Other Americans went over to Europe, raised Boyer, Neil, a number of Americans went over and they basically raced on their terms. Lamont was the first one that went over and raced on his terms. Hmm. And his terms meant American product, his buddy's bikes, Boone Lennon's bars, Oakley's glasses, yeah. carbon fiber frames from one off. Greg did it his way and he won. Yeah. All of a sudden, cycling culture of the United States is elevated to worldwide cycling attention. At the time, those first mountain bikes weren't interesting to anybody. And <laughs> and immediately, people like Hugo de Rosa, Chino Cinelli, Antonio Columbus, Yozo Shimano were buying my bikes. <laughs> it wasn't because... <laughs> In my opinion, we were we were all of a sudden changing the cycling world. It was because the cycling world was something that Greg was changing, and we were in the we were in the shadow of him. Yeah, what, what, I mean, what year was that? Would you say when sort of that well, shift happened? Yeah, it was the early '80s. Greg had Greg had won the junior world championships. Was okay. signed. Was starting to race, and you know, the beginning of his commanding career. Yeah, you know, we were just getting things started. Yeah, that seems like really great timing for a lot of people who were involved back then. I've read that one of your mentors, somebody you mentioned already, John Finley Scott, 
encourage you to build an early off-road bike, which some people have described as a woodsy cow trail bike. Well, that was John's, that was what John called it. Okay. So the the bike was based around a 650B tire and flat bars. What, What kind of rides did you imagine the bike would be good for? Actually, John's bike wasn't based on flat bars. John's bike was based on a drop bar. Okay, but it did have the fatter 650B tires? Right. It was an available standard. It was something that was uh, primarily a a European standard. Super Champion made a a 650B rim. You could find them. And John didn't encourage me. I don't know that anyone could say John encouraged anybody. (laughs) John badgered you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love John. But he was definitely somebody very similar to Yopes, had an incredibly strong attitude. He pretty much beat you over the head. And uh, he beat me over the head enough times that I said, okay, just I'm going to build one just to shut him up. <laughs> did he want you to build it for him to ride or was this for you to ride? I mean, where did you imagine a bike like this would be good to, well, to ride? if you know John's story, John's whole goal was to ride every dirt road in the state of California. And that was something he always said. I mean, it's just like, yeah, I just, yeah, I'm gonna, gonna go ride, you know, up in the Feather River. I'm gonna found this dirt road. I'm gonna go ride, you know. Anyway, yeah. so he had a he had a very annoying kind of way of getting his opinion out, mm-hmm. and not that that bothered anybody. I mean, it was just John. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe it did bother me, but um, <laughs> he sounds like a character. Yeah, he was a professor at UC Davis. And he was uh, he's the founder of the Davis Double Century. I mean, he was very influential. I think the main thing is that John was just looking for somebody to build build him a bike and do something that he thought was cool. Yeah. And he knew I was going off-road all the time with yokes. And so he had more of a purpose-built idea based on a 650 wheel size and stuff. And I was building cyclocross bikes and other other tandems. I was building, everyone knew that I was building much more than just a, a standard racing bike. So it wasn't a big deal for me to build specialty bikes mm-hmm. and to do them without lugs and to go create a new way of, of making clearances and other things. So it was, uh, it was, it was just a normal thing. So I did that, but it didn't last very long. So the first bikes that, that I built was very soon thereafter in the next year. After my meeting with Joe, and and I was kind of off to the races in that direction. People were wanting as many as I could build, and I did build 10 of them. I actually built 10 650B bikes in the very first year. I presented them as as alternate, uh, the ballooners. I mean, they weren't called mountain bikes in the very first year. They were Mm -hmm. called mountain bikes second year. But the idea was that, hey, you save 10 pounds on the wheels. And who doesn't like that? (laughs) Right. You know, so... So really, what people don't realize is the Repack era of, of ballooners, uh, cruisers, they were downhill bikes. Right. They weren't cross-country bikes. I was all about cross-country. I was all about yokes riding. I was all about long distance. They mm-hmm. were, the Marin guys were, throw your cruisers, your 50-pound clunkers in the pickup truck of Fred Wolf's pickup truck and, you know, get a ride up to the top of, you know, the intersection of Pine Mountain and and blast down. So really, it wasn't that interesting to me. I, only, I was the only outsider ever to do one because I was in relationship with those guys. Mm-hmm. They were all just friends that lived close by to one another within a couple of miles. Yeah. And so, you know, assembling together was an easy thing. It was very, very informal. And, and I 
found myself getting invited uh, one one weekend to what they were up to, and I said, "Okay, you know, I'll go do that. I'll go do that. Then I'll go for a real ride." <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. The distinction between the direction that that group, you know, with Joe Breeze and Gary Fisher, those guys were pursuing versus sort of the direction that you were pursuing at the time. Yeah, I mean, they could have gone on. They could have gone on more of a cross country ride. I just, I just had never heard about that. The bikes were, you know, they were guys that had ridden on a Yopes ride. I'm pretty sure by then I had invited Joe and, and Gary on a Yopes ride. I mean, they knew the distances that we went, but it seemed like to them it was much more of a more of a social thing. Yeah. You know, they they grew up together. They went to high school together. They <laughs> right bombed down repack together. It was. You know, they did other things together, including, you know, things that I didn't do. We're coming at cycling from a very different place. Yeah, that's really interesting to me, too, because we see that split today as well. You know, I wanted to ask you about how those bikes were perceived at that time. Were they seen as as being limited or was the idea that you could have this bike that could ride anywhere? I mean, today we have bikes for you know, cross country and downhill and enduro and fat biking. And there's just all these different sort of niche applications. But at the time of those early mountain bikes, were they truly seen as being able to tackle anything? In a local sense, yes. As the influence of the mountain bike grew to places like Moab and uh, and other places, no. I mean, you have to realize that in the very first prototyping the wheel size of 26 inch to me made sense. I was coming down. I was going from 650 down to 26. Other people were experimenting with BMX size wheels. (laughs) And to me, those bikes were definitely limited. I remember Ron Scarron had a Victor Vincenti bike that was a large front wheel and a small rear wheel that he raced on. So there was all kinds of experimenting with wheel sizes. But for me, I was, you know, I couldn't take Yopes' words out of my head you know, his training and his engineering kind of formulas and all the things that he talked about made so much sense to me that a bigger size wheel, the bigger was bigger was better. And to an extent. Mm -hmm. So coming from 700 C, which was basically what we call 29ers now down to 650, down to 26 was always a limiting factor. Mm -hmm. And yet it, uh, it was what, component makers and wheel tire makers were holding to and right. so in the first 10 years or so basically the wheel tire guys and i was i was the first guy to come along other than senior and actually design a tire and senior i don't even know if he was designing them he was taking mitsuboshi product and, and putting specialized name on it <laughs> but there was a kind of a you know a, a renaissance period where i was kind of in in the driver's seat as far as new designs and new new standards and the big manufacturers of the world were asking me what they should do and i realized in 84 that i wanted to take control of that as my future and that's when i focused more on the component side of the company rather than the the bike side Hmm. yeah i mean you started out though building frames and worked with gary fisher and his mountain bikes company at the time what was that relationship like how did how was the business sort of structured and and then how did you end up uh sort of branching out on your own well i think you got a little bit of the facts backwards i was the company okay (laughs) i was in business since 70 
1963, filing a tax return at the age of 16. Oh, wow. In terms of an entity, in terms of a company, Ritchie Custom Cycles and then Ritchie USA and then Ritchie Design were the evolution names of my company. They were two guys that rubbed two quarters together. <laughs> and after I suggested that they do it and that at that point I would sell them bikes from Richie, my company. Okay. So talk to Charlie, talk to Gary about this. I don't think I'm saying anything that would hurt anyone's feeling or, or challenge them. They, they, they hadn't been in business. Right. Yeah. That's where it's all confusing. So were they, you were, you were building the bikes and you had your company and, and essentially your brand. And then were they sort of rebranding them or were you all co-branding them at that time? How, how did that sort of work? Well, in the first year, as I said, there, there wasn't a name mountain bike. If you look at the first year and the historical images and, and the catalogs, the company is Ritchie Mountain Bikes. Basically, it's Ritchie. And then Mountain Bike gets folded into Ritchie Mountain Bikes. Mm-hmm. And then Mountain Bike. So there's, a, there's kind of a three-stage evolution. <laughs> yeah. When I first started selling them the first hundred or so bikes, the name on everything they sold was Ritchie. There wasn't, that was it. Because Ritchie was an established brand. Mm-hmm. It was established for, for years and, you know, a number of years, 10 years almost. I had a reputation for building a good quality product. You know, I, I had built a thousand frames before I built my first mountain bike. Right. Yeah, I read that. That sounds like a lot of frames. For me to have raced at the level that I raced at and to have been a builder in an industry that was that was pretty much a non-existent industry in the United States, developed a business that I could have a family and provide for my family and, and employment for employees and stuff, it was kind of a unique thing. Yeah, definitely. I think the story has been told a little too many times in in one direction and you know i didn't i haven't really cared about it i think that you know having the opportunity to correct the record is is a good thing yeah well like i said it's there are a lot of different accounts online i guess and that whole part of it's pretty fuzzy in some ways but at the time did you foresee like a huge market for this or was it sort of a gradual realization that you had that this mountain biking thing was going to be pretty big no it was definitely a complete shot in the fun direction it was something that i was just like john finley scott i was into building all kinds of things i built crazy ideas for for people and uh, Mm -hmm. this was something that to me looked interesting based on having grown up with such great trails in my backyard and ridden them to doing something that was a little bit more dedicated i was at that age in my life kind of done with racing Mm -hmm. and but building building racing bikes for people and I would say more interested in having fun and uh, having had a great many years of adventure riding with yokes and other things it just it just seemed like something that I could do more of and um, I, I built it for me personally and after Joe left after ordering his tandem for him and Otis he just I don't know what the conversation was like all I heard was he ran into Gary and Marin and said he'd just placed the order with me for a tandem and showed him his number one. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, I said, I think I'm going to build something similar. And next day the phone rings and Gary says, Hey, if you build one, build one for me. <laughs> I, without telling him built 
a third one. And in a fortuitous kind of situation that would have happened possibly in another way, but um, when Gary came to pay for his bike, I said, by the way, I've got a, I've got another one that I built, if you know of anyone that wants one. And that was the beginning. So he got together with Charlie and said, hey, Tom just built this amazing bike. He's offering to build more of them. What do you think about, you know, selling them? He knew of people. He was working at, at Sunshine Bike Shop as a mechanic. And mm-hmm. He knew of people that, that wanted them. So he had he had people in in his world that wanted him. I didn't. I was very very busy providing for the racing industry, the touring touring, and other people in the in the traditional cycling industry. And so you know, I I said, okay, I'll build ten more. And they didn't have any money, so basically I had to finance everything they did for years. Yeah. So you must have believed in it. I mean, you must have figured there's at least some market for those types of bikes, right? Well, yeah, soon it, it soon became apparent, you know, another thing people don't understand and don't see in the steel side of the industry is a frame builder was not just a frame builder. He was doing everything. Hmm. So there, there weren't ways of making a fork. If you look at Joe's ballooner, he, he takes another fork and he uses it. I'm out of the box making not only the frame with unique characteristics like a sealed bottom bracket with a 120 millimeter billwood axle in it, building the first one with with a unique double-plated crown that I had also been doing for years and years and years on the roadside. Mm-hmm. And then soon thereafter, adding custom stems and, and then the bull moose bar and seat posts and um, other things that made the bike unique in its own way that the world could look at and go, that is a different bike. That's something new. Someone with a lathe and a mill and more than just a frame building set of skills mm-hmm. to, you know, step into that space. And, and I was the first guy to pretty much do it. Yeah. Well, you talk about all the things that go into building a frame. Um, and eventually you started designing your own tubes. Why did you feel it was necessary to go down that path? Well, it was, it was the obvious issue with, with people throwing away lugs. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to how mm. to join. They didn't know how to join tubes together. Right. If you were if you were gonna if an industry was gonna gear up and start to build something called a mountain bike, and they didn't have good lugs, and they didn't have a proven geometry, and they didn't have the diameters that uh, that everyone was associating with with the mountain bike, then they they didn't have a tube set. <laughs> <laughs> and the tube the tubes had to start. The tubes had to be in the beginning. And logic tubing was unique in that it was the first set of oversized tubing that was intended for lugless construction. Lugless construction was a brand new thing. And so people were experimenting with TIG welding at that point in time. TIG welding was not something that anyone used for any nice bikes. TIG welding was a was used for BMX hmm. when you had a very thick tube and you had a very small frame and you could, you could build in all kinds of extra gussets and reinforcements. That uh, that made the bikes extremely heavy and uh, and not interesting to the <laughs> serious side of cycling, you know. Having proved that lugless construction was viable leading up to the mountain bike, and then mountain biking being able to showcase it, it was obvious to me that we were very close to the introduction of TIG welding and uh, being a standard in mountain bike construction. And if I could build a special set of tubing, which was condensed budding with differentials 
that made TIG welding appropriate. Mm -hmm. For example, a normal tube from a lug history of 100 years had a differential of 0 0.9, 0 0.6, or 0.7.1. If I made a tube that was 0 0.5, 0 0.9, no one had ever done that. Hmm. No one had ever pushed a differential that far. Matter of fact, Columbus was the first company that wanted wanted to make my tubing, and they didn't succeed. <laughs> and they had been in the tubing business since 1890. Reluctantly, I went to Japan and, and knocked on Tangay's door, and Tangay accepted the challenge that they succeeded. And then that was in the very beginning of them launching heat-treated tubing called Prestige. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a very productive, unique opportunity to, to develop a standard that had never been developed. Right. You know, kind of side story, Columbus finally figured it out and they offered their tubing. And when they offered it, after I offered my logic tubing, they called their tubing genius. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk about the proliferation of standards in the bike industry and how mountain bike specific tire treads came to be. Stay tuned. Evo seeks to deliver the ultimate shopping experience for mountain bikers. Check out their deep library of guides to everything mountain biking on evo.com guides or reach out to their dedicated team of customer care experts available by phone, online chat, and email. Unlike some other internet retailers, Evo bridges the gap between online and in-store with their three store locations, offering free shipping to stores and community events throughout the year. Shop at Evo for mountain bike gear and bikes from top brands like DaVinci, Evil, Santa Cruz, Transition, and Yeti, and take advantage of their price match guarantee. Use coupon code SINGLETRACKS online at evo.com or in Evo store locations to get 10% off your next order. That's evo, evo.com. You mentioned a number of standards uh, that you were instrumental in creating and you know popularizing in the industry i think you mentioned the 130 millimeter rear hub standard and the 120 millimeter bottom bracket spindle so these days we hear a lot of grumbling whenever a new standard is introduced but it seems like this is kind of a necessary move to make mountain bike designs move forward right to an extent i have a lot of voices in the back of my head <laughs> okay and they were from people that I really benefited tremendously from in terms of their education, mm -hmm. their well-meaning, their design prowess, their influence in, in their industry. They were unique individuals when I look back on it. They were people that said, you better not develop a new standard if it just creates a standard for the standard's sake and mm -hmm. not really after truly vetting the design and being sure you've solved a problem. Mm -hmm. And that last statement in the do no harm solves a problem is a haunting voice that's always there for me. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you have to be really careful when you're coming up with these standards. And I mean, do you think, are there a lot of examples of, of bad standards out there? I mean, I don't, I don't expect well, you to name yeah, any, but, but, but does that happen, do you think, in the industry? More often than you would uh, realize the, the current through-axle standard in the rear hub is a bad standard, and people won't figure it out until they've either fixed it and gone through evolutions or are on the other side. There's, there's a lot of standards. I, I, could, I could write a book on bad standards. <laughs> when I was in the beginning stages of creating new standards, 
and this was before mountain bikes, Bicycling Magazine was interested in doing an article on me, and they killed the article because they were concerned that my experimentating ways was a bad influence on the industry. <laughs> That's 40 years ago. Yeah. Now, it doesn't matter what you do, it's celebrated. Right, as long as it's new and, you know, there's, right. there's some argument that it's innovative. Things have changed in such a dramatic way that we do not have, unfortunately, you know, the, um, the old sages that are there that people say, well, what do you think of this? I mean, I don't know where to start. I mean, you, I could go through the UCI, all the different standards that the UCI and how they vet them. and mm -hmm. what. Yeah, that that's one of the things that Joe Breeze mentioned when I spoke with him, that in road cycling, you know, the UCI has a lot of rules that really limit how the bikes can be built and, you know, the standards that they use, whereas mountain biking was from the beginning was more open in terms of the racing standards. And so that's allowed a lot of this innovation to happen more so on the mountain bike side than the road side over the years. It definitely seems like a balance. You need to have some new standards, but also, you know, not, not get too carried away with them. I would love to have a forum discussion with Joe and some other people about it because there is value to these standards, especially when an industry takes off in a direction for no for no reason other than business reasons mm -hmm. and embraces things that they haven't vetted out with true testing and research. And then people buy that and buy into something that is, is, uh, is inherent, is inherent with problems that mm -hmm. they don't recognize. That's hard earned money that people are spending toward things that they are perceiving there to be value in that there isn't. Right. And to me, the consumer side in me is always, looking for the true true what my dollar my personal dollars buys and i know that marketing when marketing gets involved and back in the day when i started people that own companies were were actually the engineers hmm. whether they be in the tech industry whether they be you know in the european cycling industry whether it be with columbus or chino Cinelli or de rosa or any of these guys they were the they were the engineers they owned the company and they were in charge of vetting of things to be done right and as i've lived my last 40 years in this industry the people that are leading companies are much more the sales and marketing people hmm. demanding something new every year without really understanding what they're demanding right and making sure that what they're producing is a positive thing for the consumer the end consumer yeah it's a really interesting point i wanted to ask you too about developing some of the first mountain bike specific treads for tires with the japanese company irc what were the existing mountain bike tires like up until that time what what were the tread patterns like what tires were people using back then do you know what an x1 is I don't personally know. You should look it up. <laughs> An X, X1 was a BMX tire. It's basically all the mountain bike kind of evolutions of rims and tires came from the BMX side. And the BMX side came from the motocross side. So an X1 was square blocks. Okay. That was the simple-mindedness of the tire industry at that time. No one had come to them, as I said, and said, hey, I want to design a tire this way. In, in the first 10 years of the mountain bike industry, they were... They were the people that controlled designs and decided on changes and that a product had a 10-year design life was a normal thing. 
Hmm. If you look at Campy and Nuevo Record, it was a group that had been on the racing side, a group that had been around for, for 20 years before they almost almost 20 years before they made a, a Nuevo Record Super or Super Record. So there there was a longer, a much longer baking in product development process mm-hmm. that I was used to when I when I started. And design evolutions were very, you know, I know that this isn't answering your question about tires, but in a broad sense, it was a change that happened with the mountain bike. I have to say I benefited from factories letting me basically prove my designs first for them and then mm-hmm. second for myself and then walking in that door, being the first to start steering design for my own brand and uh, and basically having a having a, a wonderful beginning of, uh, of that part of my company when, when I saw that opportunity. How did you even know what you wanted at that time? I mean, if, if the tires were these square block tires, I mean, were you cutting up tires and doing sort no. of prototyping or how did, how did you even know where to start? Acting like the dirt. <laughs> Basically, I put my face down as though I was the dirt. And I was looking up at the tires, and I was seeing where the tire blocks were wearing out. Mm-hmm. And they were wearing out in one direction. And I realized that all the tires in the marketplace were an inefficient design if only one side of the blocks were seeing breakdown. Interesting. As the breakdown was differentiated from front and rear, I realized, that was the first to realize that tires needed to be directional. Mm. And, that was before, and that was before the car industry realized Car industry didn't develop the aqua tread until after the first directional tires that I developed. Wow. So there was a lot going on in and then the motorcycle guys discovered it. So if you look at the history of treads and and the influence of directional treads, it was either me or somebody that was on their own course of figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool to see how I mean it seems like bikes are unique from those other applications because it's it's human power that's powering that and you're going to be much more sensitive to you know those efficiencies and things than you know maybe somebody who just is driving a car around or a motorcycle well physics is physics yopes would um would take me as i said on a physics course anytime i wanted <laughs> i just had to ask the question push the right buttons and and out came the course so directional treads and wearing condition, differentiating front rear load ratios and what happened with basically the first generations of tires and the directional and the weight reduction and all that was what I was after. I was after for I was after in the beginning for the lightest tires. So basically IRC was was one of the only companies working with 127 TPI and they were doing it for the road. I came to them and said, I want to do it for the mountain. And they said no. And in the same way, Shimano said to me, I want to use Durace cassette hubs on my mountain bikes in the very beginning. And Shimano said no. And I did it anyway. (laughs) And then the Dior group was birthed. I don't know if you know the story about Shimano Dior. I don't. It was based on my conversations with Shimano on how to do it. And this was before I developed any of my own products and I was giving away my ideas. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you had a lot more ideas than time. I mean, it's hard to imagine the things that you were able to accomplish, let alone the, the others that, you know, maybe got away or that other people ended up running with. Well, 
I was very fortunate to uh, to do a lot of my ideas myself, but a lot of them I just just gave away, and you know I I don't regret that. I had a I've had a wonderful life of seeing things that I haven't tried to control every every bit about it. So thankfully, there's always more ideas, and it just seems like I'm just one more bike ride away from figuring it out. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's the perfect segue into my next question. You know, today's mountain bikes are stronger and lighter than they've ever been before. So are we approaching an optimal state or, um, I mean, is that even, is that even a dumb question to ask? Are we, are we ever going to reach any sort of optimal? There was a lot smarter people in history that said men would never fly and all kinds of things would never happen. Right. But the bike is such a, it's such a simple machine. I mean, it seems like they're there are some limits and that a lot of, a lot of aspects of the bikes have remained the same over time. I mean, we're talking with Joe Breeze about head tube angles and how they're essentially kind of the same as they were back, you know, at the very beginning. So, so is there sort of this perfect bike out there? Let me jump around a little bit on that question. I noticed today an article about tire size in the Tour de France. They're looking at tire size differently than they did 40 for the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. And they're basically going back to 27 millimeter tires. Guess what size tire I raced on? <laughs> I'm guessing it's pretty close to 27 millimeters. Have you ever heard of a Clement Perry Roubaix? Look at the size of a Clement Perry Roubaix. That's what I raced on. There are things that are more chiseled in stone as far as standards, and they always, and they always will be. Geometry is based on the human physiology, is based on a lot of things that have to do with ride performance and balancing characteristics. And rolling resistance is, is largely based on a lot of things that have to do with displacement and float and things that, have, things that are air-related. Air so there are a lot of things that aren't going to change much. And it's pretty, as I said, it's pretty much chiseled in stone. But there are things that can change, and there are areas that will see change. And there are also areas that we'll see retreatment. We'll see a devolution. Hmm. In my opinion, you know, the tires and things like that are, are basically people rediscovering characteristics that they have been falsely sold by the sales and marketing people of the, of the new industry that we live in that are part of the, uh, the re-education process. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is a good thing. I've lived a dream of creating things that also have come and gone. And for the most part, I've been the product test guinea pig on those things. (laughs) So there's nothing that I can say bad about experimenting. It's part of my getting to where I've gotten and it's part of other people getting to where they get. I would say that the, the encouraging thing that I'm looking at right now is the kind of people ringing the bell of, the all-purpose or the gravel bike or whatever they want to call it, which is basically how I started. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when you're talking about uh, John Finley Scott's 650B bike. Uh, it sounded to me like a gravel bike. Yeah. You know, we're we're at this place where carbon fiber makes things light. You can't design steel tubing like you can design carbon fiber. Carbon fiber, you can create shapes and organic structures mm-hmm. that can be joined with with seamless, you know, monocoque conditions. And so there's certain there's certain value to to the way things are going right now. But there's also a downside to those things that that people don't realize. 
So there's pluses and minuses just to everything that is in the in the industry right now. Mm-hmm. And we live in the soup du jour of times in the bike industry. But the good thing about it is is that there's a natural gravity force or, or a pulling force back to utility side and mm. simple side and the steel bikes and other things that I enjoy. Yeah. That natural force is basically the force of, of simplicity, of people understanding the basic value of the bike and and uh, and wanting that, and yeah, re- and reducing reducing the noise that has led them into thinking the bike is something different. And the thing that I'm concerned about, probably the segue into, is is the advent of the electric motorbike, and basically we'll see a we'll see a fracturing of our industry in the not too distant future where you'll have two industries hmm. and you'll see, you know, the human powered side go down one, one direction and the uh, electric go down another. There's a lot to be said for people for choosing electric and electrified bikes and electric haul bikes and all these kind of things that can, that can make, uh, make it easier for them to get around without a car. Mm-hmm. And not to diminish the value on that. And as I get old and as I get to be, at an age where I'm going to be either able to ride or not ride, and my as my dad is at 89 years old, there's going to be probably an, an electric bike in my future. Yeah, well, will you call it a mountain bike, or will you we call it an electric bike? I don't know. It might be an electric trike at that time. If I <laughs> can't even balance, you know. <laughs> but yeah, you st- and and you still ride a lot too. I wanted to ask you about that. You, how many miles a, a year are you? typically riding well until recently i i was putting on upwards of ten thousand miles a year wow and um i've had a couple of car accidents and i've broken some things and oh man um, and i'm in in kind of repair mode i'm getting i'm pretty much back but uh i enjoy riding every day yeah and i ride a lot with my wife on the tandem so i kind of split it up between every other day with her on the tandem and alone by myself one final thing I wanted to ask you, are what are some of the mountain bike innovations or new products from the last few years that uh, you're most excited about? I mean, I think you probably better than anyone uh, know or have a sense of which innovations are kind of game changers and here to stay and which ones are sort of, you know, fly by night or flavor of the week. So which ones are, are you really excited about? I'd probably say it's it's a mixture of old and new. When I think of the things I'm excited about, I'm excited about things that people would laugh because they're not new technology. They're just they're just technologies that uh, that have been around for a long time and that that I'm enjoying. Right, new old tech. I mean, yeah, yeah. you you must have gotten a kick out of seeing 650B become this phenomenon. You know, a few years ago, where everybody acted like it was this brand new thing and you know the greatest yeah. greatest thing that happened to wheel sizes, but. You know, like you said, it it had been around for forever. Yeah. So the rediscovery of things is is something that I I've enjoyed seeing. Cycling is a, is truly an honest pursuit. It's a noble sport. Hmm. It's something that that brings out your limitations very quickly. Anytime you make something that is as light and as it is and is it needs to work as good as it needs to work it brings you to an honest point usually and it and it does it to you you don't do it to it 
so much of the stuff we celebrate these days in terms of technology, we don't really have a lot of true understanding of, of its value. Mm-hmm. We, um, we project value into something before we truly know it personally. That is something I, I, I feel like I'm, at my age, I'm growing hopefully more wise about. You know, I'm excited about having one bike right now. And having one bike that can do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, that's kind of very much in my roots and things that, that I've done in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I started out with one bike. You probably, you know, don't need to hear my, all my stories, but it's it's important for me to go to a place like Moab and ride my road, road bike around Slick Rock. Huh. Um, because I know I can, I, I want to do it. I just know that it's that it's something that, is something I want to check off my list. Yeah. Whether it be that, whether it be the original Yopes rides that got in me and never, never gotten out of me or whatever it is, it's, uh, it's that kind of mindset that I, that I like, I like to carry into my product, into my life, into my, hopefully in the simplicity of things. Yeah. That's a great perspective. Well, thank you so much for talking with me and giving our listeners a insight into the early days of mountain biking and where sort of the industry might be heading in the future. You're welcome. Well, you can keep up with the latest products and innovations from Tom Ritchie and Ritchie Designs at RitchieLogic.com. And don't miss our upcoming interview with Gary Fisher as we continue our Mountain Bike Founders podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Peace.